Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to talk about a very curious case of a delusion that doesn't really exist anymore. Princess Alexandra Amalia of Bavaria was part of the House of Wittelsbach, which ruled Bavaria for more than 700 years until the early 20th century. She was born on August 26th, 1826, and was one of nine children. Uh, Most of these were pretty notable royal people, and she has plenty of relatives who were a lot more famous or maybe infamous than she was. One of them that jumps out is her nephew, Ludwig II, who was also called Mad King Ludwig. He was known for deeply eccentric behavior and for a fairy tale castle that he built and for his suspicious death. So Katie and Sarah did a podcast on all of that back in 2010, and they brought up Alexandra's own dubious claim to fame in that episode, which is her belief that she had swallowed a glass piano. Which is quite something to believe. It is, and a little context might help us all wrap our heads around this very particular delusion. So, for familial background, the princess's father was Ludwig I of Bavaria, and he was known for being uh, a bad poet, a really great patron of the arts, and a notorious womanizer. So, uh, he sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, He had many affairs, unfortunately, and decorated a room in the palace with portraits of beautiful women. And he also had a large birthmark on his forehead, and that's actually left out of most depictions of him. Her mother was Therese of Saxa Hildburghausen, and she married Ludwig on October 12th, 1810, and their wedding festival sparked the tradition that has led to today's Oktoberfest. Therese had a hand in ruling the kingdom, and the people were extremely fond of her, especially as she put up with all of Ludwig's affairs. Yeah, she got a lot of sympathy from people. Uh, Alexandra's father left the throne pretty abruptly. He had started a really public affair with Lola Montez, and she was an Irish woman who was pretending to be a Spanish aristocrat. The people of Munich hated her. She was coarse, and she swore, and she was disrespectful to the queen, who, as we just said, they really loved. And she seemed to have a really big influence on the king's opinions. Meanwhile, the king had given her a title, money, and a home. So she was super unpopular. And in the wake of the affair, Ludwig abdicated the throne and Alexandra's brother succeeded him. Uh, Her brother ruled as Maximilian II from 1848 to 1864. Often this is portrayed as the king left the throne because of the affair. And that was really just one piece of the puzzle. There were other things going on. There were other revolts going on against the monarchy in other parts of Europe at the time. Um, Plus, Ludwig had a pretty liberal reputation when he ascended to the throne, and people were disappointed that the decisions that he made as king didn't really match up with what they had expected of him when he rose to power. They also didn't really like the decisions that he was making, which they attributed to Lola's influence. So it wasn't just that he had had this scandalous affair going on. There were other things that led him to abdicate. That was just one of the big items that people can easily point to. Right. And speaking of Lola, uh, a mob burned down her house after the abdication, and she ended up fleeing and running to London. So all of this happened when Alexander was about 22. 
She was the only one of her siblings, apart from one who died in infancy, who never got married. And only one of her siblings hadn't yet gotten married when all of this happened. So Alexander was still living at home, and she was pretty set apart from the rest of her family at this point. And it was a very public royal family. People, you know, knew all of them. Her siblings were uh, married to royalty in many other houses, and... The family was really hit hard by this scandal and abdication. And Alexandra's health and mental illness were already a little bit frail. She wasn't really hardy. And she was super preoccupied with cleanliness, and she would wear only white. So she already had some behaviors that were a little bit obsessive and suggested that she was not quite perfectly balanced. Right. So... Just because one thing happened after another thing, it doesn't mean the first thing caused the second thing. But this must have been a really difficult time for somebody who was already pretty isolated and not in good health. And within a year of her father's abdication, when Alexandra was 23, her parents saw her walking sideways, clearly struggling in the palace. And when her parents asked her what was wrong, she told them that when she was a child... She had actually swallowed a grand piano made of glass, and she was consequently frightened that if she bumped into anything, she would shatter, that the piano that she believed she was still carrying inside of her would break apart. Yes. So there are two things that are particularly strange in this delusion, and one is that she believed she had swallowed something that was much, much bigger than she was. She believed it to be an entire grand piano. And the other is that she became to believe as an adult that she had already done this when she was a child and that the piano was still inside of her. It caused her physical distress and it made it, it made her really, really careful in how she moved around. And uh, roughly a year or so later in 1850, she was actually treated for this delusion in a mental institution. It seems like she made some recovery there. In 1852, she started to publish books of stories, essays, poems, and other work, and she also worked in children's theater. Eventually, she went to a convent in Munich, and she spent much of her later life there, and even she even became an abbess. Which seems like she she must have been doing better at this point. You, you wouldn't quite get into a position of authority if you were having that sort of problem. Yeah. She died at the family's summer palace at the age of 49 on September 21st, 1875. But she is not the only person historically who has had the glass delusion. No, that's an actual delusion that that was cited pretty often between the Middle Ages and all the way into the early 19th century. It's maybe not something that was super common, but it was prevalent enough that it appears in both medical writing and in literature from the time. Basically, people became convinced that they were either turning into glass or that they were made out of glass or that they had turned into a glass object like a flask. This is usually cited as a urinal, uh, which was just the word that was used for a little glass jar kind of thing or a lamp. They would be really careful not to get bumped or jostled or come into contact with with anything hard because people who had this delusion were afraid that they would shatter. And it often came, naturally, with a, an extreme preoccupation with protecting themselves and avoiding contact with others. Some people were even afraid that loud noises would break them. So at that point, they would have to be not touching anyone or in a quiet place. Right. Kind of an isolation that probably would propagate the delusion even further. 
Yeah, but a lot of times people were afraid that their buttocks were glass and that they would shatter if they sat down on anything hard. Um, this whole idea of being breakable and being afraid that you're going to break was also not really new as a delusion. But before the Middle Ages, people thought that they were made of pottery rather than glass. But the core idea was still there of if someone touches me too hard, I will break. And at the time, this delusion was tied to melancholia, and it was generally among people who were very isolated and withdrawn from the company of other people. And a lot of times people who had this delusion also had photophobia, and they wanted to stay out of the sun. The first medical report of the condition may have been around 1561, and it was in a treatise by the Dutch physician Lemnius, who described a man who would not sit down because he believed his buttocks were glass. Charles VI of France also allegedly had this condition and believed that his whole body was glass. So he wouldn't let people touch him, and he had special clothing that was reinforced with ribs made so that he could wear that and then not break. And more than one physician to royalty has described this condition. Uh, Alphonse Ponce de Santa Cruz, who was the physician to Philip II of Spain, described it around 1614. And he described it as an unnamed person, uh, in this case, possibly a prince, that thought he was made of glass. And his physician told him to lie in a straw bed so that he wouldn't break. And then the bed was conveniently set ablaze, forcing the prince to move quickly without consequently breaking, and that relieved him of the delusion. Kind of reminds me of cartoons like hitting the person on the head with amnesia yeah. again to make their amnesia Secure their stop. amnesia. Yes. Um, André de Laurent, who was the chief physician to Henry IV, also described that case in his writings. Uh Louis de Casenove, who was the royal physician in France, described a glass maker who constantly wore a cushion because he believed, again, his buttocks were made of glass. And that doctor allegedly cured him by spanking him. So, again, just proving that what the person believed was not the case. Right. People also described that they had glass hearts or glass heads or glass chests that had to be protected. And there's one theory that a lot, most of the people who described being afraid that they were glass were educated people, and they may have heard of this syndrome in medical writings, and that may have contributed to eventually developing the delusion, obviously based on other tendencies to be afraid and and having other mental things going on. Right. So it may have uh, just shaped kind of the way that their delusion developed rather than being a spontaneous thought of their own. Right. Uh, and psychological writings at the time attributed many causes to this delusion, including the preoccupation with chastity, purity, and fortune. Uh, and glass, we should note, was tied to fortune in folklore and literature because of its fragility. So fortune may turn on you as easily as, gr- as glass may break was kind of the underlying theme there. There were also physiological explanations at the time. Uh, including that the people's brains were too dry, and that was tied to melancholia in general. And the glass delusion, as you mentioned a little while ago, also appears a lot in literature. Uh, in the 1607 allegorical play Lingua, most likely by English playwright Thomas Tomkiss, there is a character who believes he has become a glass urinal. There's also the 1613 short story, The Glass Graduate by Cervantes. His main character, Thomas Rodaja, is obsessed with the idea that he's made of glass. He wouldn't wear restrictive clothing. 
He would drink water from his hands instead of a cup and sleep in haylofts. And he would walk in the middle of the road because he was scared that if he walked by the side that he could be shattered if roof tiles fell on him. In this story, he winds up with this delusion because of an aphrodisiac that has gone horribly wrong. Uh, in 1621, in The Anatomy of Melancholy, Robert Burton writes about this delusion under symptoms or signs in the mind, and he ties it to a fear of devil's death and danger. The 17th century writer Paulo de Medina was a Spanish writer who had a character who was a dandy and believed his bottom was made of glass. And he had to sub- he had to commit himself to an asylum after cracking it while answering the call of nature. And this, uh, this is sort of my personal note. This, this series of stories about people who believe they are glass and might break really reminds me of the possibly apocryphal story about the person who does too much LSD and then starts to think that he's a glass of orange juice. Uh, if anybody touches him, he's going to spill. Both of these have the same underlying sense of, um, Fear and the dangers of taboo behaviors. I had not heard that one until it came up in in this podcast research. Really? Yeah. I, heard, I heard it in high school. I never heard that and one. And it's on it's on Snopes, so <laughs> other people I believe it. I just missed that one. Somehow. Other people than me have heard it. it they they just have very com- they have similarities. Yeah. And there are commonalities for sure in how they express a sense of this odd fear and uh, as you said, like the Taboo behaviors of of not behaving properly, right? And there is a lot of modern research on these delusions as well. Well, there there have been modern writers who have kind of gone through and documented all of the various citations of the glass delusion in medical literature and in literature. There are other things that that have been documented that we didn't go over here because then it would just be a list of names and dates, and that would be annoying. But the BBC did an audio program called The Glass Piano in 2012. And in it, an actor plays Princess Alexandra, and then they interview modern scholars to offer some commentary about this delusion that she experienced and sort of how she might have come to this state. Uh, psychoanalyst Susie Orbach says that it was important that Alexandra's piano was specifically a piano and not another glass thing. Uh, piano, of course, means soft. And what she thought she swallowed was huge and fragile. But if she had been able to, she could have used it to make music. Historian Erin Sullivan talks in the program about uh, doing work into the history of emotions. And she specifically talks about the history of sadness. And Sullivan talks about the connection between melancholy and the glass delusion. A lot of times the underlying fear was the fear of being vulnerable. So men would be afraid that their body was becoming glass and they would remove themselves from society to protect themselves so that they wouldn't have to have that vulnerability in front of other people. In Sullivan's opinion, Alexandra's delusion may have been an expression of her underlying fragility. And she does, in portraits, seem quite fragile. She casts a, and there is an air about her where she looks delicate. It's very, she's very pensive. Her portrait was painted for her father's gallery of beauties. And in it, she's really pale. She's dressed all in, in white. As we said earlier, she went through a period where she would only wear white. And she just has a very fragile and pensive air about her. So, you and I were talking earlier about how it's it's not really a far walk to go from being really uh, uncomfortable around people and re- withdrawing from people and feeling isolated and being afraid of being hurt to starting to believe that you're made of something that will break if you're hurt. Yeah, I mean, you can see how someone who is isolated 
there's nothing to stop that delusion from developing. Right. Everything they're doing on their own is sort of supporting it. Unlike the instances we cited where physicians kind of did like an extreme immersive shock therapy of like, right. no, you're not going to break. You're just fine. Uh, you know, pe- not everyone had that. And so the delusion just kind of grows and takes on a life of its own. It becomes very consuming. So that is the story of the princess who swallowed the glass piano. I really empathize with her. Yeah? Yeah. Do you think you swallowed something glass? I do not think I've swallowed. I don't think I've swallowed something glass. But I can, you know, I'm kind of a neurotic, anxious person. I can, I can sort of see if I were living in a, in a palace when my brothers and sisters had all gotten married and, and gone off to live their own lives in other palaces elsewhere. And I didn't really have anybody to talk to. And I was already kind of of a neurotic mindset. I can sort of see. Yeah. Getting to that point. In the isolated halls of the castle, where my father had been forced from the throne to be replaced by my brother. Yeah, it is, as you said, a short walk. I mean, it's easy to see how that happens. And now I believe you have a bit of listener mail for us. I do. I have two listener mails, and they are both about our episode on Australia's rabbit-proof fence. The first is from Karen, and Karen says, This morning, while listening to the podcast, Australia's rabbit-proof fence on Stuff You Missed in History Class, Holly mentioned that the first people to come to Australia happened about 3,000 to 4,000 years ago. I'd like to correct them by saying people populated Australia around 40,000 years ago. We have cave art in Kakadu that's been dated back 40,000 years. Keep up the good work. And then on our Facebook, we have Alex. Alex says, Hi, thanks for a great couple of episodes on Australian history. Just a correction slash misunderstanding that now appears to have turned into a lengthy episode suggestion. I haven't gone through other people's comments on this episode, so this may have already been said. When talking about the dingo as a native animal, you said that dingoes arrived with the aborigines around 3,000 to 4,000 years ago. While the dingo may have arrived around that time, or as long as 10,000 years ago, the aborigines probably reached Australia as long ago as 60,000 years. I think this would make a great episode topic, as it covers an almost unknown period in human history. A group of prehistoric people must have built boats and embarked on an epic voyage tens of thousands of years before other people could have achieved anything like this. Another interesting aspect is that Aboriginal culture has existed continually through this time, making it the oldest existing culture on Earth. It is also something that has often been left out of history class on purpose. Even a relatively modern history books begin with the history of Australia, starting with the arrival of Captain Cook. Despite the fact that modern Australia has existed for something like 1% of the time it has been inhabited by humans. A 1960s book I have to hand describes the Aborigines as, quote, I'm just going to apologize in advance for how offensive this 1960s textbook is. That was my side. The most backward race on Earth who gave us some jolly place names before going on at great length about the mining and stock raising industries. So thank you also, Alex. This doesn't that just make your stomach hurt a little bit? It made my stomach hurt a lot. And this, so number one, I would like to apologize because this is an example of what I wrote in my notes was not clear, and then consequently, and then I misspoke and had poor choice of words. Yeah, we said it wrong. We do know Aborigines were here longer than that. (laughs) Yes, Uh, but just the yeah, the dingo arrival thing got kind of conflated in with other things. Right. So my apologies because that was not wise on my part. Mutual apologies. So and and my notes, admittedly, were not clear on this point. Um, what we were trying to say was that the dingoes arrived with 
some humans who also arrived that long ago. We did not mean to imply that those were the first humans ever in Australia. We may have actually said that, but that, that was because my notes were messed up on that point. La Ronga. Yes. <laughs> because sometimes we make errors uh, with the best of intentions. So um, Alex's comment actually led to some pretty lively conversation on our Facebook page about how the, the Aboriginal peoples who populated Australia arrived there and whether it was via a land bridge or via boats. Um, it was a pretty interesting discussion. And I agree that would be a great podcast episode. So yes. hopefully we will get that in the queue sooner rather than later. Yes. We have so many good ideas from listeners. I know. It's hard to, we can't guarantee that we'll hit them all. Just the volume to our production ratio is, yes. is not possible. Please send us ideas because we love to hear ideas. But when I, I made a list of all the ideas that we had gotten in March and there were about 150 of them and we do two episodes a week. So as much as we love to hear suggestions, there are just so many of them that we cannot possibly do them all. But we will do our best. We will. If you would like to send us a suggestion or write to us about this podcast or anything else, you can at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff and on Twitter at Missed in History. We've recently started a Tumblr, which is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we are on Pinterest. If you would like to learn about something that I think may be a modern equivalent of the glass delusion, you can go to our website, search the word hypochondria, and you will find the article, What is Cyberchondria? You can learn that and a whole lot more at our website, which is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.